Hi, it's Alex here. The Future of Film Summit 2020 is coming this November, and I'm so excited about what will be the first fully digital future of film. Not only will there be some incredible speakers and partners, we are in the process of building an interactive, digital-first experience that is going to be unlike any other film event. More details about this in the coming weeks, but while we are still shaping the programme, we'd really like to hear from you. What is the number one thing you would like to see at the Future of Film Summit 2020? What is the most pressing issue in determining film's future? Or put another way, what would you like to learn most about? Email me personally at alex at futureoffilm.live or share your suggestions on Twitter at futureoffilm underscore. You can see more about the summit and get tickets at futureoffilm.live. But for now, I'd love to hear from you and what you would like to see at the Future of Film Summit Online 2020. Hello and welcome to season four of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping film's future. Today's guest is Epic Games Chief Technology Officer, Kim Lebrary. Kim has a long and auspicious career in digital technology and visual effects, spanning over 20 years. He has credits on more than 25 films, including the original Matrix and its sequels. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a two-time Academy Award winner. Prior to joining Epic, Kim headed up Lucasfilm Strategy, where he was responsible for the company's Star Wars technology, and now he's driving the adoption of Unreal Engine across the entertainment industries, in particular virtual production, which was brilliantly showcased in Disney and Lucasfilm's The Mandalorian most recently. As regular listeners to this show will know, I, like many of us, think that virtual production and these real-time game engine technologies are going to have a massive impact on filmmaking in the next few years, particularly as it becomes much more widely available. I think it answers so many uh, challenges that film is currently facing. And Kim does a great job of laying out how this works and what this might look like. And it was a real pleasure sitting down, having this conversation with Kim during lockdown earlier this year. This episode was recorded as part of Rebels of Storytelling, which is a free video series you can watch now at futureoffilm.live. Rebels of Storytelling would not have been possible without the incredible support of Epic Games and Unreal Engine, who are pioneering the transformation of screen storytelling. We are also very proud to partner with Creative England's Creative Enterprise Programme. You can find out more about the Creative Enterprise Programme and the two new grant funds they have available for screen industry business planning post-COVID and to develop innovative new ideas, both at creativeengland.co.uk. If you are enjoying the show and want to discover more about the future of film, head on over to futureoffilm.live. 
Here you can check out all four seasons of the podcast, explore our other free resources like Rebels of Storytelling, and download the free Future of Film report. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and please enjoy this conversation with Epic Games' Kim Liberary. So, Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks very much for taking the time. Really excited to be talking to you about Unreal Engine and virtual production today. Uh, I know you've been working very closely on the Mandalorian, which broke so many new barriers in terms of virtual production. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the things which are coming out of that and how you see that impacting the wider filmmaking world? You know, it started off with, um, you know, John had worked on a a movie prior to that called uh, The Lion King, where they'd done a bunch of virtual production with um, uh, with game engine technology. And... uh, He'd seen he'd seen what we'd done um, in terms of our GDC demo for that year, which was it's two years ago now that we actually built all that tech. Um, it was the the Star Wars uh, Phasma um, little short that we did with uh, with ILMX Lab, and he was like, "Wow, that rendering is so good. Could you generate that real time and allow us to be able to do sort of in camera visual effects where we're starting to take the post production out of um, out of the the normal visual effects process." So um, he'd, you know, his DP was um, uh, a guy called Greg Fraser, who'd worked on um, Rogue One um, earlier for Lucasfilm, and they'd done a bunch of LED shooting. So the the combination of hey, can you can you use an LED wall for lighting, but can then can you also generate pixels with Unreal Engine to you know produce the an in camera, you know, something you could basically point a camera and shoot was uh, how it all came together, and. Um, you know, it, it obviously, it has the, you know, the primary purpose was, can we get real-time lighting and can we get a real-time composite that is convincing enough for an audience to buy? Um, but on the on the side effect of that is that, you know, because it's a big wraparound LED screen that they had for the show um, that ILM had put together, you were able to, to look around you when you're inside the volume and see the place you're meant to be. So it was very transformative for the actors as well. The actors were able to have a context of, you know, what was the location they were in? Where are they relative to the action? And uh, it really, it, it's funny, you, you go on that set and um, it feels like a real location-based movie set as opposed to a visual effects set. And, you know, you, you, you've seen uh, plenty of instances where a green screen is so big on a movie that you really have no idea what you're looking at. And uh, it can be quite frustrating for the actors, the directors, the director of photography. So for the first time, the visual effects team were an integral part of the crew. So as opposed to us being a bunch of nerds on set that really nobody has an idea of how the hell that thing's going to come together in post-production, for, for once they're able to see visual effects being made in front of their eyes. And it was the most awesome experience in all my years of working on movies, which was 20 years, I'd never seen anything like it. And you know, within the first couple of days, everybody was acting completely natural, like they were shooting in a real location. It was a pretty awesome experience. And is a director and a creative team able to make adjust- adjustments as the shoot is unfolding? Yeah, so because everything's you know, real-time rendered, they're able to move objects, uh, reposition them, change scale, change lighting. And in fact, they, they have sort of an iterative loop 
way before they hit the LED stage in that everything's built on Unreal Engine. They have, um, Andrew Jones, who was the production designer on, on the show, actually still is the production designer on the show, has a team that they call the Virtual Art Department. And that's a bunch of um, artists that, you know, traditionally have worked either in visual effects or video games coming together to generate all the assets that they need for the show. Now, obviously, you know, physical assets that you can do photogrammetry of, they would either photogrammetry scan or use Quixel um, library assets for, but the stuff that was bespoke to the world of Star Wars, the spaceships, the hangar interiors, this virtual art department would build them. Um, and then they would all enter a multi-user collaboration session with the director of photography, the production designer, and John to work out, you know, wh where would the great shooting angles be? Is the layout working? What time of day it should be? And all that was interactive. And actually, with the, the way that we have the engine set up now is that you're able to you know, make them adjustments that you were doing one of them collaborative sessions, even while the wall is up and running. And actually, you show you look at our video. We put out a video um, last summer that shows that technology in, in, in usage. We have a little motorbike case study that we did. I think that uh, that case study was done by um, a shot by someone called Matt Workman, who's also That's on right. the... Yes. on the virtual series we're, we're, we're doing now. So um, yeah. That's yeah. Nice... Matt, Matt is one of our most inspirational users. I cut like what he's doing with our engine is mind blowing. And the fact, you know, it's, it's one guy with a couple of his mates across internet connections during this uh, lockdown period is absolutely incredible. So yeah, Matt's, Matt's, a, Matt's a very unique individual. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm talking to him later in the week. So I uh, look, look, look forward to that. Um, so going back to this, this Mandalorian, it really seems to be... Um, changing i guess some of the dynamics on set and how how things are conceived and then executed you talked about the this uh, multi-user collaboration ses session i mean that sounds that sounds amazing right actually not having people in their siloed kind of workflows but actually coming together to collaborate how did the people on set respond to that and how do you sort of see that going forward well, you know it, it's funny john john always believed that this would all work out and and you know initially the first at the first day of shooting with the system um we, you know we did a we did an early test uh that um island put together a small test stage um it would have been june 2018 something like that i think it was june yeah um and you know, for the first day, people just like just don't believe it. And there's an initial tendency when there's too much, when there's a lot of technology on set, there's an initial tendency to go, oh my God, to, oh, oh, the, the computer the computer people have taken over. And honestly, within a couple of hours of doing the first few setups, they're so, you know, there's an iPad interface that, that we built that allows them to control, you know, you can rotate the world, you can raise the camera, you can stop and start animations. So, and you can do just color correction for the, for the whole volume or individual walls within the volume. And once they started using it and they got used to the, the user experience, it's, they never looked back. It, like really, it, you, would have, you would have not thought that this was a world first when we were doing it. They were so, they were so into it and they just took it for granted. And you know, I went to visit John, um, oh gosh, it was before the COVID thing, it would have been a couple of months ago, right, right before we did the, the lockdown happen in California. And uh, you go on the set and, it, you know, it's just, it's just totally normal to them. Like the, the fact that they have this effectively this massive, you know, hollow deck around the shooting stage that has all these fantasy environments and they can load up a star field or rotate the world or do all these godlike things in their environment is just second nature to them. And as I say, it, you know, it brings the visual effects team and all the artists working on that content to be just, just regular members of the crew. You know, if they need to 
hot load something from the art department to make a change or get Ireland to, to, to tweak a change in San Francisco, they do it and they send it down and it's, it's all updated. It's, it's a pretty, pretty amazing process. It does sound somewhat magical uh, and exciting. And what about the fact that now where we are all in lockdown and this presents an opportunity to shoot stuff without going out on location? Have you had a lot of uh, uptake or feedback you know, during the, yeah. the crisis? So there's, there's two components to that. So, you know, shooting with virtual production, whether you're using an LED wall or you're doing a green screen replacement after the fact, um, requires you to make digital assets. And uh, one of the good things about digital assets, unlike physical sets, you can you can build them anywhere in the world with any artist you want to work with. You know, you go for the talent rather than the the, the um, uh, specific location. So it means that um, a lot of um, preparatorial work for, you know, TV shows in the future or movies in the future when everybody can get back to work can happen um, uh, early and it can happen with a, a massive workforce because there really is a massive, you know, distributed computer graphics workforce uh, all over the planet. Um, and then the other part of this is that, you know, them stages are pretty pretty contained. They don't need the same amount of crew as you would have on a main live action uh, set because you're not having to move as many physical lights or as many physical set pieces. So they can actually, it makes it easier to social distance within one of these spaces. You know, especially the, you know, the Mandalorian stage is pretty, it's pretty huge. They can, they can build a decent size sort of um, props set um, a, a rat surrounded by the volume. So, um, and it, it's very easy to, you know, people can go in, do their work, come out, and then the, 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 the stage is given to just the cinematographers and the actors. So um, it actually it actually works out pretty well. So we yeah we've heard a, a lot of people considering this, a lot of studios, um, and you know on top of this you don't people don't necessarily want to be flying for a while until there's you know a better a better understanding of uh, of what that really means to people's health. So um, I think that that uh, the fact that they, you can still make a, a movie that looks like it's gone to all locations around the planet, um, yet it was shot in Los Angeles or London or, or, or wherever your studio is, is quite a bonus for them. Yeah, incredible. Um, I guess that two two points that you, you raised there, the, the second being the, the stage with the LED, uh, which sounds incredible, but maybe is out of reach for some productions and the first where it's much more about planning and the structure leads me on to to a question about um, how accessible the technology is in terms of you know who can who can use this is it is it within reach for an independent movie for example so the the, the general you know virtual production capabilities of the engine that's within the reach of all people and you'll talk to matt later on about what he's doing in his sort of very indie indie way right now um the the, the complex bit is the if you want to use the LED walls as your in-camera pixel source and your lighting source, um, that's quite expensive. It can be you know many millions of dollars for the hardware, but the, the technique and the engine still works with um, uh, green screen. So you can have a you can be on a green screen shoot and uh, at least get a preview of what you're shooting as you're shooting it. The engine is also able to computer control lights. So if you have Ari Sky panels or any computer addressable color temperature intensity based movie light, then you can use them and sample from the virtual scene to make sure the lighting on the character that you're lighting is true to the environment they're going to be in post-production. So um, it's not, it, you don't have to go for the full LED thing. It's definitely an expense. We are seeing a bunch of stages 
um, being set up that are exclusively designed to be LED stages, which at that point, then it's the, the cost of that has been amortized across multiple projects because the studio owns it. Um, so that, that helps. But yeah, you don't really, you know, you look at Matt's setup at home, he's got, you know, big wraparound greens, quite big. It's actually pretty small by movie standards. But um, it, the, the tech still works and he gets live, live review, live results. And then he still has a post-production where, um, schedule or post-production component where he can, you know, render the background in the engine, uh, turn all the settings up to 11 and then do a, do a composite in post-production. So it, it, we, we make sure to design it so it works both ways. Where, where else are you seeing uh, innovative or, or growth use, I guess, of Unreal Engine, which, you know, thinking within film and, I guess, other sectors? Um, you know, one of the things that has um, it's taken a while, you know, everybody thinks of computer graphics as this rendering process. Yeah, that happens in post-production and, you know, it's traditionally fulfilled by, you know, RenderMan or V-Ray or Arnold or, or one of these software renderers. Um, so a lot of a lot of the early um, questions that we get from people thinking about getting into real time is, you know, can you just use the engine as a viewport for something like Maya and just 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 about its real time rendering um, capabilities? And you know, we've been we've been pretty pretty um, clear that don't think of a game engine as just a place that renders awesome pixels. Yeah, it really is a sandbox that allows you to make simulated worlds. You know, you play any any video game, it's. Um, it's not a static world with static characters that have you know, sort of been preconceived and they never change. It's a fully dynamic, interactive world. So what we're what we're seeing now is um, with a bunch of the previous companies and the and the and the more progressive visual effects companies, they're starting to realize that they can build you know like they can basically use simulation for to create cinematics. So to give you an example, say you're doing a car chase, okay. So the traditional way in a movie studio would be, you know, have a, a, a car rig that you draw a spline within your environment and the car will turn its wheels and you know, lean into the corners and sort of look like a, a car doing its thing. And that's the way, the way they would design animation or do pre-visualization for something like this. What we're seeing now is that people are starting to embrace the fact that you've got a game engine here and they're like, well, why don't we just use the vehicle system in the engine? Um, hook up a controller or a steering wheel and drive around our location, find out what cool stunts we can do and then place cameras after the fact because you know, everything that you, um, uh, that you can animate within Unreal in a, in a gameplay session is recordable through this thing called sequencer recorder and then you can lay cameras on it and find the sweet angles and you know, uh, because... You know, we have physics and randomness and happy accidents can happen. So uh, it's finally beginning to see people click that. We're also starting to see people understand that instead of, you know, every shot being this hand laid out and hand built thing, you start to be more systemic about how you solve a problem. You, you want to do weather. You think you've got rain and snow and sunshine. Well, build a system for that in the engine. So, you know, we just released a new sky and time of day system where you can, you know, you can put in where you are on the, on the planet, what time of day and what time of year it is. And the lighting will be accurate. We're adding a cloud, volumetric cloud system to that. So this thing, you know, gives you the flexibility that you really can make changes live in front of your, your eyes, whether you're using LED walls or you're doing previs or post-production or any, any of the kind of things that people use the engine for right now. So it, it's gradually beginning to click that, have a more systems-based approach, make tools. It's almost like, you know, if you could make a weather system for our planet that the DP can just, the DP and director can just dial in the weather conditions, they would do, but they can't. But you can in, the, in a game engine because it's a virtual world and uh, you know, the rules, you don't have to obey by the rules of the, of the normal world that we're in. 
do filmmakers need to be thinking about reskilling for for any of this, or is it a case of um, partnering with uh, with software engineers or um, people who are more uh, you know, game designers, for example, to to fully realize some of these benefits? I think you know Matt. Going back to Matt Workman, he's a good example of, you know, he has this product Cinetracer. He's not an engineer. He uses all the visual scripting that we have in the engine, this thing called Blueprints. Um, he's a director of photography by trade. And I think that people, you know, growing up, you know, video games have been around for a long time. You know, I'm I'm 53 years old today, nowadays. And not, not today, but nowadays I'm 53 years old. I play crazy amounts of video games. Over the weekend, I was finally finishing Horizon Zero Dawn after years of having the game. I thought I'd, get, I'd actually finish it off. But um, you, people are so used to video game mechanisms and controls that actually you'd be surprised that it's only, it's only a handful of people that don't really get their head around how to interact with the computer in a real-time scenario. And especially on the, on the, the virtual production stuff with the LED a wall driver being an iPad, it's just second nature to most people. So you'd be surprised how you don't really have to be, you know, super techie. You want artists, obviously, that understand the engine and can make scene and make contents. But once the system's set up, it's not, you don't really need to be that deeply, you know, technical to be able to, to get some results. You're listening to the Future of Film podcast with me, Alex Stoltz, and I'm in conversation with Epic Games' Kim Library. If you are enjoying the show, do check out the Future of Film report, which is available to download for free at the home of Future of Film, futureoffilm.live. Kim, I want to take you back 21 years to an earlier time uh as i won't do do the mask you just revealed your age but um to to when you were working on a film called the matrix Mm -hmm. uh and tell me i mean such a formative film and thank you so much for for helping bring that to to life it's such a you know powerful one for myself but i guess yeah how how formative was that process working on that movie and can you see any parallels between what you were doing then and what you're working on now well there is there's a lot of you know people are quite thematic in their lives so there's a lot of there's a lot of threads and themes that have repeated themselves all the way through my career you know the first the first movie actually we we worked on a movie before matrix called what dreams may come um which was a, a place we had to make a virtual world um, that was meant to represent um, um, uh, heaven in some way. But the, the, the cool thing about that movie, other than it being an interesting movie, was that um, the, the world was photographed in a real location. They went to Montana um, uh, and shot in, the, in the, the National Forest up there. And uh, we had to turn that into computer graphics to represent you know, the, the, the world after death or the, the, um, to, to, to represent heaven, which is the inverse of the Mandalorian, actually, if you think about it. That, that's shoot inside a, a, a computer-controlled bubble and have the computer generate the environments. The other one was like shoot live action. Um, but there's a thread that goes through that, that movie is that it introduces us to a thing called optical flow. So optical flow is the technology that allows you to track every single pixel in a, a frame of video. And it was the thing that birthed what we ended up doing on the Matrix movies. And actually, you know, 
bullet time was the right at the beginning in the storyboards. You, you can look at the storyboards that Lana and Lily um, uh, had put together with the, their team of comic book artists. And it was pretty much described as, as we ended up delivering it. But um, we really, what we didn't want is we didn't want to be so constrained that we couldn't, you know, choose our camera path after the fact in post-production. But the reality of the situation in 1998, when we made the movie, um, came out in 99, was that <clears throat> bullet time was not, the only way we could work out how to do it with the, the current state of the art at the time was with a, an array of still cameras. But if you actually look through the documentation, which I don't actually, I don't think there's an online presence of this documentation. Um, I still have it. It talks about <clears throat> this concept of universal capture where you plop down a bunch of movie cameras, uh, high resolution movie cameras, and then reconstruct three-dimensional geometry and allow the camera to move anywhere. So, <clears throat> We just didn't think it was feasible. You know, it was film cameras then. Resolution wasn't good enough. So uh, we went with the, the still array, um, but with a variable time base. So we could, we could trigger each camera on an individual time point so that you could get the moving of, movement of his cape and the movement of Trinity as she goes up and does a, a move. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, when we came to reload it, um, we were like, well, John, John Gada was like, ah, I don't really, do we really have to do that again? We have... <clears throat> Excuse me. We have um, we have thousands of Agent Smiths trying to shoot him in the bullet time rig for these shots in, Ke in Keanu. It's just a nightmare. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. Hundreds of passes of a bullet time shot, and we're like, okay, John, all right, well, let's let's look at that that, that universal capture thing again. <clears throat> and I knew at the time there's no there's no way we were still on film cameras. Digital cameras were were pretty crude and pretty primitive in that era. So we didn't we didn't think it was going to be possible to lay down you know, 20 movie cameras and magically get a, a 3D result. <clears throat> but what we did feel is that the faces, using the optical flow technology that we had developed on What Dreams May Come, that um, the, the faces could be reconstructed through optical flow and, you know, five camera views looking at them. And that was the birth of 4D face capture, which is what Vlad, so this is a, this is a lay long story to get to the point where there, there was a connection to all this. So <clears throat> Vlad at three lateral, they have a 4D scanner that is absolutely a progression from what we built on Matrix Reloaded, and I think we did the original test in 2000 uh, today. So that's one that's one thread from the from through what dreams may come through the Matrix all the way up to, to um, you know through Reloaded today. And then <clears throat> while we were working on uh, uh, Reloaded to do them bullet time shots, I thought the only possible choice to be able to do you know three and a half thousand Agent Smiths in one scene was to do a digital version of Smith. And, you know, all them techniques, the real-time class simulation, the image-based lighting, the, the, the measured materials, the ray tracing, all these things that we did that were, you know, we were some of the first adopters of this technology in that era. It's all present today. So actually, yes, a lot of, a lot of what we do, a lot of how Unreal Engine renders humans today is directly related to the way that we did it all them years ago. Um, and you know we're, we're thematic. We we tend to do the same. Like tend to do want to do a better job of what we did in the past. Or if we had an idea that we thought could do something amazing, you know, ten years ago, but it wasn't quite ready, we try it again. And a lot of the a lot of the um, techniques are connected to the way we do stuff in real time. And then on top of that, you know, this idea that you know everything unreloaded 
that I was responsible for stuff that took place in the matrix, not the real world. So there was a, a core to our philosophy is use as much computer graphics as possible on the movies, which at the time, you know, I think we had 450 fully computer generated shots on the, on the, um, the, the stuff that takes place inside the matrix, which was unheard of, you know, 20, almost 20 years ago was unheard of, uh, uh, where we were making reloaded and revolutions. But now <clears throat> all them techniques pretty much the, 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 not just the foundation for making movies today, but also the way we do things in real time. You know, we added ray tracing a couple of years ago to the engine and uh, it's just incredible to be able to see, you know, frames generated in milliseconds that would have taken us 10 hours a frame all them years ago. And so I, I guess we come on to then the future of film and the future of filmmaking. <laughs> what, Kim, how do, you, how do you see filmmaking evolve over the uh, over the sort of medium and, and, and longer term uh, so I think, I think yeah. over the midterm I think we're going to see more adoption of virtual production I think that people are going to start to have a more systems-based approach you know drivable cars weather systems time of day you know basically building a tool tool set of the components that they typically need to use when they're when they're shooting a show or, or shooting a movie um, um, I think that um, quality of the engine will get better and better. There's always going to be shots that are so complicated that you end up having to go into post-production. And I think that, you know, we'll, we'll do our best to make sure that the rendering quality of the engine starts to scale to post-production quality levels, uh, as well as being good for the LED walls. Um, and uh, I think what's going to naturally happen is that as directors and filmmakers start to make things basically in the game of, a, uh, sorry, in the world of a game, I think they'll start to think of their IPs in a different way. <clears throat> this idea that the movie always comes first and it's better than the game could ever be, or vice versa, it, I, think, I think that then barriers are gonna drop over the next 10 years. And I think it's only a matter of time that we start to see games and movies using the same components, telling the, st the story of the same characters or the same locations, and a, a lot of sort of fuzzy crossover between them two worlds. Um, you know, in the world of animated features, we really talk about animation, you know, there's no reason that you can't, um, you can't start thinking about rendering, you know, kids animation live on an iPhone or an iPad and have it be customizable and shareable and editable and sort of start this whole new crossover into the way that people are used to consuming entertainment today on their iPads and their tablets and their PCs and mixing in the great storytelling that you get with movies and television. You know, even, even I can even see live events. You know, we did this awesome Travis Scott concert in, uh, in Fortnite a couple of weeks ago. Um, having live events that coincide with stuff that's being rendered on demand for your TV show, I think it's all going to get pretty, it's going to cross over in really interesting ways. And I think that, I think it'll be a renaissance of, um, uh, creativity because the possibilities are so infinite that I think we're going to be surprised with the new stuff that we see. It's not, it's not our job to actually say what that stuff's going to be. It's up to artists and visionaries to play with the tools and, and, and make new sorts of art. So I, I think it's a pretty exciting time. So it all comes down to storytelling in the end after all that was my conversation with kim library of epic games which was recorded earlier this year if you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more you can do all of this at the home of the future of film podcast future of film 
www.ghostbusters.live. You can sign up for updates and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.